Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Material Issues. This is episode number 46. I'm Mark Hirschberger of Pop Detective Records. Joining me, as always, my very good friend from the West Coast and the top dog of the International Pop Overthrow Festival, known worldwide, my good friend, David Bash. How are you tonight, David? I'm doing well, Mark. Great to see you as always. Looking Good to forward see you to well. another amazing episode of Material Issues. I'll tell you what, if people be uh, tuning in uh, tonight, um, it's going to be a little bit different. We're going to throw you a bit of a curveball. That's just a maybe little hint. Maybe a split finger. Maybe a split finger. <laughs> but we're going to have a great time. I'm looking forward to tonight's episode. Uh, you just had IPO Phoenix uh, wrapped up. How did that go, my friend? It went well. I mean, it's Phoenix is the only one that takes only one day. It's a long day, three o'clock till midnight. We had 11 bands, mostly from Phoenix, a few from Tucson. It was fun. It was it was a really, really eclectic mix. The, the first band were these like 13, 14 year old kids who were doing their version of grunge. I mean, like original tunes that definitely, re, you know, reminded me of the stuff that Seattle, was happening in Seattle. Uh, and then, you know, we had a really good cover band after that, which we normally don't have. But right. it was, again, another kids band from the, the East Valley School of Rock. So we School really wanted Hall. to do that. Wanted to support that. Uh, and then, you know, we had all kinds of all kinds of a real great mix of power pop and psychedelic pop and, and singer songwriter and all that stuff. It was fun. Right. Good attendance. Uh, I love the venue. Cactus Jacks. A yeah. really classy place. And uh, yeah, so it was fun. And, you know, Rena and I drove in and drove back. It's like an eight hour trip, but well, well worth it. Uh, cool. Stopped at a few cool. record stores on the way. So, of course. On the, of course. Yeah. Of course. Well, speaking of records, I had a question for you, though, I, I wanted to ask Do you know when the first colored vinyl appeared on the market? I'm going to guess it's sometime in the 50s, but maybe it was even earlier. Well, it's a very good answer, but like the first the first colored vinyl was 1908, which was an amber colored vinyl. But Yikes. the first that wasn't vinyl that was a cylinder, wasn't it's it? It's really an amber colored cylinder, but the first vi colored vinyl you were absolutely right came came about in 1950, RCA Victor, and the only reason I bring it up is a neighbor across the street gave me all this vinyl from his mother uh, estate. It's not oh. really worth much anything. And I didn't know that the first colored vinyl came out in the 50s, but there's an RCA Victor Red red Seal 45. That's uh, Old Man River, Robert Merrill. <laughs> written, the guy, written the guy who did, I mean, Jack will know this, the guy who did the national anthem at that uh, Yankee Stadium for all those years. I assume yeah, there you go. And uh, as written by Oscar Hammerstein, but evidently they put out red vinyl, green vinyl, yellow vinyl, right. midnight blue, all, all different genres had different colors of vinyl. And I've got a ton of this stuff here. Oh, wow. But it's uh, not really worth a lot. No, evidently they put out a billion of them. <laughs> so maybe the black vinyl is worth even more. Maybe. I don't know. It's interesting, but I just thought I'd, I'd bring that up a little. No, no, I, I remember seeing some some colored vinyl uh, from the fifties. I didn't know what year. Yeah, so I knew it had to. It couldn't be later than that. I got, I got. So I got plenty of Mario Lanza. If you're in the market for Mario Lanza, <laughs> mine, you know, I've got everything by Mario. Ah, so uh, okay. Well, just I'm, in case uh, you needed I'm good, it, I'm good there, Mark. <laughs> but you know what else is good? Uh, no. Our guest today, and uh, this is the. He'll be the first uh, Major League Baseball player we've ever had on Material Issues. And, um, you know, he's had he had a great career, uh, won the Cy Young Award in 1993, had a lot of other good years. Um, he, you know, he's been the, he was in the middle of a little minor controversy in, uh, when he was a Yankee. Um, and um, he certainly has a lot of opinions about baseball, especially the way pitchers are handled these days. He's not happy about it. Me neither. We're gonna, we're gonna find out about that and uh, many other things about this gentleman. And, and oh, and the last thing I should point out is it's also a rock and roller guitar player. Uh, fronted two bands, 
including stick figure, which I heard for the first time yesterday. And I'm really impressed. I'm going to ask Tim about a reunion show at International Pop Over. <laughs> I nice. really love what I heard. So anyway, so yeah. So without further ado, would you please give a huge welcome to Mr. Black Jack McDowell. There he is. Jack McDowell. And yeah. I like the color vinyl thing. And look at these verbatim CDs. Oh, nice. Well, yeah. yeah. I love the way those things look. Yeah. I wish more people would do those. Those like, yours? Oh, they copied the copy of the old school vinyl. That's, yeah. that, that's, that's when you that's when you burned everything to digital with the uh, with the colored uh, verbatim CDs. I love it. I keep I, love I keep asking a lot of people, do you still listen to CDs or is it all just digital online stuff now? Because I've got a bunch of my CDs still that I'm like trying to pass on and get going. And so hopefully people will start listening to CDs again. Well, you know what, Jack? I I, I was talking to a CD manufacturer today on the phone because every year we do a, a compilation for my festival and uh, he told me that there's definitely been a resurgence that he's been getting a lot lot more cd business than he's had in the past several years so well the cool thing about that too is the artwork you get the yeah. artwork, the lyrics all the cool stuff and that was so much fun to produce also on top of the music absolutely it's all becomes just oh just put it online and let it go none of that even appears so no no no. i mean digital's fine as an option but you got to have the physical product and people yeah. need to be buying it so well indeed indeed and that that's all part of the that's all part of the marketing it's, it's it's playing live and having your cd for sale having people come up and say can you sign this it's really hard to, to sign the digital file you know uh <laughs> or take a selfie as i hold up my cell phone with with the digital file it i mean there's nothing personal about the digital file, so no. you know uh, I'm very much, uh, very much into that. But uh, first thing, first thing I got to know, Jack, and I, I've read, I've listened to interviews and things. The name Black Jack McDowell. Um, there's been all kinds of, uh, there's been all kinds of stories, and and here's one I pulled up on my phone, and I and I know you're going to probably have a, an alternate version of this, but this says as a baseball player, Jack McDowell developed a nasty reputation as a cruel dude, which is a song <laughs> lyric, right? Earning the nickname Blackjack McDowell, he showed no fear in tongue-lashing Chicago White Sox management and no reluctance to throw at a batter. That's from somebody named Paul Verkamen of Showbiz Today on CNN. Is there any truth to... Well, here it is. CNN, typical lies, all right? <laughs> Who had the greatest command in that era? Greg Maddox. Greg Maddox. <laughs> Go look at the hit batters that he had compared to what I had and see how many guys I threw at. He has tons more of batters hit than I did, yet, oh, I threw it, guys, all the time. <laughs> well, on the other hand, Go look up the, the stats, dude. On the other hand, Jack, the, I mean, if, if a ball from Maddox came anywhere near a batter, he's probably stunned and never moved. So yeah. <laughs> that may have been why is it? Yeah, some of mine, a lot of mine were just, hey, you, you know, you throw a split and it cuts in. And sure. Foot. That happens. It wasn't just you're throwing at guys and hitting guys and all this. It's baloney. So where, so where, where, where did blackjack really come from? Well, it came from, uh, you know, from our announcers. They just started doing it. And because you don't listen to your own games, I had no idea that <laughs> I was being called Blackjack until we go to Minnesota and we're stretching out on the field in between the, you know, the hitting area and first base. And the twins get done. And in comes Kirby Puckett, who always, we always talk to him and, you know, he's a really cool dude. And he comes in and goes, Blackjack, what's going on? And I was like, hey, Puck, what's up? What's going on? And I turned around and said, what did he just call me? Blackjack? What is that? <laughs> and Robin told me, he said, I think that's what Hawk Harrelson's calling you now is Blackjack. And, you know, I looked at it and I go, okay, my name is Jack. And I was the ace of the staff. So ace and Jack equals Blackjack. So that oh, had something to do with it, too. Nice. Did you ever get a sponsorship from the gum? No. Oh, no, no. Oh, man, that was a missed opportunity. <laughs> needed a better marketing department. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't all about the marketing, just wanted to play. 
No, of course. And and then that dovetails into the uh, the question I had. I mean, the season's starting tomorrow. Do you miss it? Miss Do you miss playing? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I do, because it was just, you know it's fun to compete, and you know it's a lot. I still love coaching. I love being out there and being a part of it. And we get a lot more work. You get to actually get a lot more work in being a coach, a baseball coach, than any other sports coach. Just think about it. every other sports coach. You just sit there and talk. Baseball coach, you got to hit a hundred ground balls a day. You know. 50 fly balls a day and throw 150 balls, you know, to half your team and then throw another 150. So you got to be in good shape. It gets you in good shape to be a baseball coach. So it's kind of fun to keep doing that. What do you, what do you find is the difference in coaching young players today than when you were being coached as a young player throughout uh, say the seventies into, or the eighties? Uh, I'm coaching the way it should be done, which is <laughs> coach. And, and what I have learned by playing the game for as long as I did, and then for coaching at every level from T-ball up to pro ball two times through. And you get to see the progression of guys, what actually works, what doesn't, what's smart, what's not. And so I learned a ton of stuff. They've taken it all away. It's mm -hmm. all about metrics now. And it's all about predetermining games and we're all worried about launch angle on the on the swing, and we're worried about you know creating launch angle. You don't create launch angle, you know. If you create how you launch a pitch, hitting would be a heck of a lot easier. At three hundred, only getting three out of ten hits makes you a Hall of Famer. You know, that's one of the things I constantly got to tell kids. You know, don't be frustrated. You made right. a big deal. You know, seven out of 10 times, Hall of Famers get out. That is just part of baseball. And that's what you try to teach the pitchers, too. This ain't about velocity, guys. It's about getting guys out. And guess what? Hall of Famers get out seven out of 10 times. And they ain't all strikeouts. And it's not because they're swinging and missing. It's because they're putting the ball in play. And guys are right there. It doesn't even matter. It's just end results is what matters. So you yeah. obviously don't like the, the way the game has evolved, in your opinion, has devolved into, into home runs, strikeouts, walks, shifts, all that stuff. Yeah, it's just it's gone to no more baseball knowledge counting. You know, and, and baseball as a sport is a pitch-to-pitch -pitch adjustment while you're pitching while you're hitting, while you're playing defense, it's all pitch and pitch judgment. You watch, you know, as a pitcher, ooh, okay, I'm feeling better now with this and then better, better with that. Okay, so now I know where I'm moving forward. Hitters, you know, okay, oh, you just jammed me with a fastball. Okay, let me make sure I get to that next time, but prepare for this. It's pitch to pitch adjustment. You can't predetermine what's going to happen. And you can't just take a single type swing like they're trying to teach now right? because yeah. the pitches up, down, knee high, chest high, in and out, they're different pitches. How can it be the same swing? It is not. It's different paths. It's different finishes. And so all the stuff being taught now is just swing as hard as you can. And, uh, well, guess what? As a pitcher, I know more about hitting than a lot of those guys do because guess what? You're going to change velocity. Yeah. You know? You're going to change your velocity. You're going to move it, and sometimes you're going to throw hard, and one will be three or four miles an hour harder than the next pitch, and you're not even trying to do that. It just happens. And yeah. guess what? The difference is about this much of a difference, okay, in how much the ball gets there when it's two miles an hour different. Well, guess what? If you're swinging and not staying through the ball and you're just trying to swing, you're going to roll over, you're going to miss, you're going to hit it off the end because you're not hitting through the ball. So, Given that, given that, uh, that, guys, that a lot of guys now do have only one swing, do you think you would have been even better if you were pitching now? Oh, gosh, you might want to come back. Absolutely. <laughs> 
this and going, okay, these guys are doing this. And now, well, the biggest thing also now is they've gone back to the 60s strike zone. Now they're calling pitches chest high again. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you go look, I've posted on Facebook a, vi- a bunch of videos of pitches that were not called strikes. And it wasn't just, oh, he just blew this call. No, it was our strike zone back then. Belt right. high, high. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no doubt. No, I mean, the strike zone has changed a lot. Uh, so you like the current strike zone then? Well, it's a lot better for pitchers, you know, because you can get them to chase higher than chest high because they have to protect. And then all of a sudden you can throw your breaking ball a lot more because it's going to start high and they're going to have to make a pass at it, but then it breaks down in a way. You know? And how about your opinion, Jack, on because I'm very old school when it comes to baseball. I, you know, I grew up in the 60s and the 70s with two divisions in each league. There was the winner of each division, played five games and you won the World Series. And you never saw the American League or the National League team until you played them in the World Series, which to me was extremely exciting. But as a great pitcher, and you are legitimately a great pitcher, three All-Stars, Cy Young Award winner, doesn't get much better than that. Your opinion on today's pitchers where in their contracts they say they don't go past six innings no matter what. And and pitchers that are taken out of the game with a no-hitter on the line, and they're just like – That's the great thing that happened. That's just another great thing that happened because that exposed the ridiculous metrics baloney that is going on. That exposed it to everybody watching the World Series going, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> this a starting pitcher is a starting pitcher because he's supposed to be one of the best guys you have and can last longer than other guys. You know, look at yeah. Mariano Rivera. Mariano Rivera started out as a starter with the Yankees. And when you were there, yeah. And couldn't get by the third or fourth inning. And that's why they put him to the bullpen. And then he was able to just dominate for an inning. That's the way certain things work. And the thing, like one of the metrics things that I laugh at, it's basically every metrics thing that's out there, I can turn it around with reality and say, why don't you you go measure this and then find out how wrong you are? What they say now is as a pitcher – Third time around is the toughest time to get people out because they've already seen your pitches. They've already gotten ready to hit you and they're, you know, they've got in. So the third time around about the seventh, sixth, seventh or eighth inning, that is the toughest time. And we ain't letting the starting pitcher do that again. Well, think about our era and think about growing up. What they said was if you don't get a good starting pitcher early in the game and he gets into his groove and starts to know what he's right. doing and what he can do good, you're going to lose. And I, that's one thing I need to go and check for my own stats. I'm going to go look and see what my average was first time around, second time around, third time around in my games. Cause they have their right. games. I didn't throw seven, eight or nine innings. That was just as starting pitcher back then. So you always face, you know, guys, three or four, maybe five times a game. And I mean, yeah, I have to admit, I, I there, are, there are a lot of things about the new metrics that I like, but the one you pointed out is one of the ones that I don't. And it's clear that it, I mean, look at the, look at the Rays. They lost the World Series because of that. Yeah. I mean, don't you have to look at individual situations and say, you know, I don't care what this guy's normal pitch count. Today, he's got it. Let, Why are we taking them out? The other team is supposed to let you know when it's time to take the starting pitcher out. Right. They start <laughs> on you, then guess what? Hey, Mr. Manager, you better get him out of there. We're just going to keep scoring because he's out, <laughs> okay. out of his role. Yeah, definitely. That's just the way it is. And, you know, that disappeared. Now they predetermine what's supposed to happen, and they don't just let it happen. Yep. There's yep. no all knowledge happening during the game to be able to make decisions they're predetermined to sit guys that don't really even know the game and they're doing metric stuff but they aren't doing it correctly to what should be done you know check it see you can go you can go do all those numbers same thing oh exit velocity is so important you know line out to the left fielder 10 feet high that's at 112 miles an hour you're out Guess what? 
jam shot, boom, that goes 40 miles an hour second baseman, and two guys score. Oh, that was terrible. No exit <laughs> velocity there. No, it's end result. Guess what? Swing bunt. Swing, just missed the ball a little bit. Bink, and then, 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 swing bunt, you get base. Hang with it. That's the way it works. That's baseball. Jack, uh, results. Question, question I have for you also, because you know, we've not talked to a former major leaguer here on the show and being a huge baseball fan as David is, you played for really four really good, you know, uh, organizations with the White Sox, Yankees, Indians, Angels. What, what were the differences between playing for say the Yankees organization versus a White Sox organization versus like Indians, Angels, or maybe an organization that doesn't win as often, like like the Pirates through the '80s, '90s, and or, or a, you know a smaller club. Is there really a big difference between playing for different organizations as a player? Well, a lot of it just depends on who you're hooked up with, you know, in the clubhouse. You know what happens upstairs, whatever. You know, right. they're going to do what they're going to do. But your every day has to do with your clubhouse, your teammates your coaches and all that. That's what's the most important thing. And that's what gets you wins. Right. Okay. All right. Group together, pushing each other and doing the right thing. Who's your favorite I'm, manager to play for? The problem with any of them, you know, they were all pretty cool. Like, you know, I still love Jeff Torberg, but he sent me down <laughs> to triple A. I was supposed to be the, the number two starter going into spring training. And because I was hurt, the year before, I didn't have enough pre-time to get ready for spring training, so I was just getting ready during spring training, and I wasn't up to the level that I was up to, you know, and he decided he wanted to send me down. But then, you know, when it all turned around and I came back, he was like, ooh, I think I messed that up. Sorry. That's awesome. As I said, I grew up in the uh, 60s, 70s, an old-school baseball, and I just uh, – yeah. Talk about you know making appearances in All Star games in front of a crowd like that, facing facing the best of the other league. That's just got to be such a thrill. And I know you know it's it's an All Star game, but it's still back in those days. It kind of kind of meant a little bit more. The the you know, the winner winner got the the World Series uh, home advantage or whatnot. Uh, but uh, describe that kind of a feeling to me. Just taking the mound during all in an All Star game. Well, it's interesting because they did that move, the all-star move where, okay, the winner gets this to make it look like now we're really trying to play against each other. Where guess what? In baseball, you can't do what they do in the NFL and the NBA. You know, the NBA all-star game is, what is it, 160 to 140? One's really playing hard defense. They're just kind of just going half speed and doing what they do. Football, the same thing. No one wants to get injured. So it's not the same thing as the game. Baseball is pitcher versus hitter. And you're going, you don't want to be the guy that gets knocked around or the guy that doesn't accomplish something in baseball. And it used to be, we used to compete in those games big time like it was playoffs. Mm -hmm. And we were 3-0. And the three games that I played, we were were 3-0 and we were happy with it. You're absolutely right because in, in in every other sport, the All Star Game is not really a game. It's just a showcase to do. You know, hockey they just you know that nobody and touches football, each other. It's a, it's football is after the season's over, for God's yeah. sake. Yeah. And they're just kind of like going half speed, and uh, you yeah. know, basketball the same way doesn't doesn't really count for anything for them. You know, but baseball, you know, playing one one game during a week off. Is fine for everybody, and you wanted to be there, and you want to do well. You're yeah. not ser- you're not serving up home run balls just for fun either. <laughs> no, no, I'm just I'm not I'm not going to throw hard because I don't want to get hurt. I'm just going to serve it up and let it go. Right. right. <laughs> yes. You didn't want to. You don't want to be the guy that got beat up. No, not at all. Let's take you back a little bit. So you you grew up actually in an area that I lived for 20 years, Sherman Oaks, Van Nuys area. Yeah. Um, you're right. Uh, as as a, uh, I'm trying to remember now. Let me take a look. Notre Dame High School in Sherman Oaks. Uh, were you the best player on the team? Uh, back then, I I probably was. Yeah, yeah. I was a shortstop too, and I went to went. To I was going to ask about that. 
two-way guy, but didn't get, you know, once I got to be a weekend pitcher, that was it. And then, then you got drafted by the Red Sox in the 20th round and you didn't sign. Was that because you, you thought that if you went to Stanford or another college that you would develop and that ultimately you would get drafted a lot higher? Well, absolutely. You know, 20th round, I knew and looking back on it, it was just because of the Stanford connection. You know, the first, I think the first guy who signed as a junior, even out of Stanford was, was Bouchelle. And that was right around the time that I came into Stanford. And when I got there, you know, we had guys that were big leaguers eventually that were all there as seniors, you know, because they wanted to finish their Stanford degree before they moved forward. When I got oh, Stanford's a really good school. Um, I drafted junior year, but I was two quarters ahead. I worked yeah. hard with, with the stuff. I was two quarters ahead, so I only had one quarter to finish up. So I went there right after my right after my rookie year. I went there and finished it up. So you were you were a really good student. You really cared about school, unlike maybe some other athletes. Well, you have to. You had to back then. Nowadays, it seems like they're cheating a little some places. Oh, no. <laughs> well, let me tell you something. I started college at Syracuse University when they had a really good basketball team, and uh, one of the students there. I, who shall remain nameless, um, he got an 11 on one of his math tests and he ended up getting a B in the class. And I, you know, I said, well, you know, they're moving this guy along. They don't really care what he gets. Well, the teacher obviously couldn't count and didn't know the math. <laughs> Ironic that it's a math class, but now, yeah. Now that teacher is probably a metrics guy in baseball. <laughs> 11's a B, go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess at Stanford you had to do it. Yeah, right now in baseball is they changed the scholarship thing to now they're allowing academic scholarships not to count for the number of scholarships allowed in the sport. So in baseball, oh, wow. eleven point seven for D one. I was coaching in D two, and there was only we only allowed nine scholarships. But now that they switched that, that, oh, the academics don't count into that. You look at the schools that just want their baseball program to be the best, and they're just giving guys athletic, you know, athletic stuff. No, we're giving them academic scholarships. And wait a minute, is there a basis that needs to be on? Did he need to be a 3-8 and above? And yeah. the SAT of 1100 for you to get – this much money no they just give it to whoever so they can give a guy a full ride just because he throws 95 miles an hour yeah. <laughs> school guy and get away with it now so the, just the mca is just getting so weird yeah uh, i i lament I, as again i i lament i i lament the old days um and of course when we talk old days we talk because david and i collect baseball memorabilia and cards and such we talked previously before we came on air on that poster right behind you, and that's baseball cards of Jack McDowell. How many baseball cards did you appear on? Do you know? Well, that's all the ones I've come up with. Let's see. What are their uh, hundreds? Yeah, <laughs> there are hundreds, a few hundred up there. It's crazy because it's. It just blew up back then because, you know, when we first got it, it was, what, just tops. That was the only right. art company. And then in the late 80s, early 90s, when I broke in, all of a sudden, like, seven, eight companies came in and started doing cards. And so, exactly. yeah, you got tons and tons. Was that was that fairly lucrative to a baseball player to sign a contract with uh, all the various card companies at, at all? Um, to, just that, that they could use your likeness? No, it it to do it. It was I think it was it was a funny of like a five dollar sign thing. Oh, okay. It was a five dollar thing. You signed it and you got five dollars, and then they were able to print your cards and put them out there. And they called it stake money back in the day. Exactly. So <laughs> you got drafted. You got drafted by the White Sox. Was that the team you you really wanted to be drafted by, or did it matter? Who well, was your team? If you look at the draft, they were they picked me five overall, and guess who was seventh, David? Greg, Ma no, Maddox was before. Was it was before the Dodgers. Oh, the Dodgers. 
Dodgers were at seven. Oh, oh. Going up in L.A., that was my team. That was the only team I really cared about. That would have been cool to be able to go with them. <laughs> got to go with the White Sox. But. Yeah. On the other hand, that would have been tough to be number one on the Dodgers when they had Oral Hershiser at the time. Yeah, yeah. So there was there was that, and of course the White Sox became became a very good team. Now in 1987, you came up and immediately, you know, were successful, three and zero with a one nine three ERA. Did you that year? Did you think this was going to be a real easy career at that point, or, or did you think ah just we got lucky? I knew I knew I could compete because, and I've said this a million times. From my freshman year at Stanford till the time that I signed, there were probably like eight or nine guys that I played against freshman year that are already in the big leagues. And so you see that, you know, and I go, oh, okay. So I've already pitched against these guys and I've done okay. And I've seen this guy pitch and he's okay. You know, oh, so I guess I have a chance to keep going forward and be okay. And it's just, like I said, it's just pitch to pitch adjustment. You just keep trying to get better. And that's also the reason why the minor league system was a lot longer. And now they're getting rid of it because they can predetermine who are really going to be right, yeah. leaguers. Well, wait a minute. Let's go look at some Hall of Fame dudes that were drafted in the 40th round. Yeah. But Mike they, Piazza. As they gone and look at how many first rounders never made it to the big leagues. That's a yeah. big story I always hear about, too. So wait a minute. You, you're trying to say that now you can predetermine kid out of high school is going to progress into this. A kid out of college is going to progress into this and be able to adjust. I hope so, but that's not reality. The reason is this game is not just about you know oh this guy throws this and he throws so hard and this. No, you've got to be able to make your adjustments and to be able to do things and move forward. And get yourself better as you move forward and get with better players, better players, better players. And that is the analytics. It's not measurable. And yeah. so that's not what they do. So what are they doing? Oh, we're going to get rid of, you know, three levels of the minor leagues now and only draft 10, 15 rounds. And you can't, you can't measure somebody's mental toughness either and their emotional toughness and the way they perform in, in, in situations. You can't measure that. You know, and, and it's just ridiculous that how many guys are getting pushed out of the game because they're not getting drafted who probably would have been major leaguers and been solid, good players. Mm -hmm. yeah. No doubt about it. Yeah. Speaking of solid, good players, um, you had on the White Sox, you had a couple of guys who came up who um, obviously one of whom became a Hall of Famer and another could have been if not for well maybe he wouldn't have been if not for anyway but uh frank thomas when he came up did everybody know that he was the real deal immediately well we knew we knew he was a big strong hitter i mean look he was a huge dude and you know he, he was one of those where he takes batting practice and even when you know you miss on the swing it still would go at least out to the warning track <laughs> one of the things that's never taken seriously these days is a hard ground ball. If he'd hit a hard ground ball, that thing would get through. And that's why you have a higher average. Yeah. Well, I mean, what, what would the exit be? angle was minus 10 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's, that's a base hit or it's a double down the line or it's a double in the gap, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's like, uh, it's like Herman Munster hitting the ball underground, but <laughs> 10,000 miles an hour. <laughs> oh, it's excellent. I and love then it. you had you had Sammy Sosa come up, and uh, obviously he didn't stay on the White Sox too long. Um, what did people think of him? I mean, obviously he was way less disciplined than Frank Thomas, but did he was a young guy, and did he seem like he was going to become a great player? Nah, he was a solid player, but you know, before the Juice era, no one realized how much bigger and stronger he was going to get out of all that stuff. So. Yeah, indeed. Now you, you, know, you played for the White Sox. Are, are, are you a big uh, baseball history fan or whatnot? I mean, the White Sox have had quite the history in major league baseball, as we know uh, from the black Sox, to everything Bill Vec did with uh, the uniform, the some of the crazy uniforms. Uh, um, 
You know, I I love I just love the White Sox. I, I love the the organization and some of the crazy stuff that they did. Um, what what were what were some of your favorite teams, so to so to speak, as far as what you saw during your playing days? Uh, the White Sox was cool because you know I was drafted and we kind of we were a younger team and just kept getting better, getting better, getting better. And then finally, you know, five years into it, we were able to compete with the A's who were a big time veteran superstar team. Right. Yeah. But we grew and, you know, got better and better as we went. We finally beat them in 93 and got there. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately didn't go further, but you know, that <laughs> happens to a lot of teams. Oh, yeah. And but of course, '93 is the year everyone's going to remember you for because you won the Cy Young that year. But metrics, shall we say, uh, have determined that you were actually better in '92. Uh, I mean, how do you feel about that? Were you better? I mean, you weren't going to beat Eckersley out for Cy Young that year. Nobody was. But well, do you think you were better in '92? I think that to even go back one more year, 91 might've been my best year when I was only 17 wins. But if you go back and look, I believe there were seven blown saves. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Still was that, was that 250 plus innings. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the saves are just, okay, Hey, we're going to give him a save, get out after the eighth and we're going to give him a ninth inning. And yeah. I have blown saves and I would, you know, I would have won, 23 games if it just would have been normal you did have your most your highest strikeout total that year and that was the year after bobby Sigpen uh, set the save record but i guess you know, the following year you didn't quite have it <laughs> as it happens with a lot of relievers except for guys like rivera and hoffman but um did you think you were going to win the Cy in 93 um yeah i mean i i didn't know you know the year before i thought i had a shot at it and, you know, the next year, you just wait and see. You never know who's going to vote for what. So, no, did that kind of thing matter to you? What's did that? It matter to, did it matter to you at all? Or oh, Yeah, it was cool. You know, because once the season's over, you know, okay, it's something that, you know, you can get. But it's like I always tell everybody, individual awards, yeah, they're okay and all that. But that ain't what this is all about. And that's not the best thing to do. Individual stats can always be better. I had a Cy Young. I lost ten games too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Twenty-four, what, twenty-four and ten that year. Two, twenty-two and ten. Twenty-two and ten. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, hey, so I lost ten games, so I could have had a better season, right? Right. Yeah, but I won the Cy Young. Oh, great. You know, the only thing that you can't improve upon is a championship. Yeah. yeah. And championship, and there ain't nothing else you could have done as a team. That was any better. Yeah. So when players always say in interviews, and it's a stock answer when people ask about, you know, individual awards versus championships, and players always say, uh, the individual award matters to me a lot less than winning the championship. That's really true then. Oh, absolutely. People ask me, what was the, the coolest thing in your career? And I still, I'll still say it, that the Stanford winning the national championship. Wow. Okay. You know, that's wow. by far the coolest thing. Well, and yeah, you know, and again, talking talking about being old school, I yeah, you know, I look at the players' salaries in the '60s and in the '70s where they weren't making very much, and to me, it just seemed like they really tried like hell to get to the World Series and win because their cut of the World Series winning could have been one fifth of what they made for the entire year. And I look at players today, and and David and I have had this conversation. And some of these guys that are making 10, 12 million, whatever the hell it is, a year, and to get that little cut of, of, of the championship, to me, it doesn't seem like the hunger is there like it used to be. Oh, You're yeah. You know, it was a big chunk you got if you, you got to get to the playoffs and all that. But now, yeah, now, why do they even care? You know, some guys well, make that, $30 million. That's my question. And I mean, I mean, to me, it seems like why, and I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like why would you care if you're going to spend all these extra weeks trying to win the the World Series when you've pocketed thirty million dollars? You don't need that extra little, you know, maybe incentive money. You could be hanging out in Bermuda somewhere with your family and and chilling. 
but back in 1971, when Mario Mendoza, whatever the hell it was, was making $102,000 a year, and he got $25,000 for winning the series. Oh, he wasn't even making 102 back in 71. He was probably just, making like 20000 But you, you get a check for $20,000. The winner's share, I think, was 23000 in 71. Oh, no doubt, yeah. That's a big that's well, a big deal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so I just want you know, one's your opinion, you that's another that. question, John. See, now there you go again. That is what's the truth. Who are guys that really like to compete and win? Who are the guys that compete and win? You know, that is the thing, not just you know, guys that want to strike out a million guys and get, you know, personal records and money. No, I want to win games. You want to go out there and win. Yeah. That's yeah, what I, you win. What do what do you think of the fact that Major League Baseball is has partnered with gambling right now? Do well, you think it's a bad idea? I think that it's one of the hardest things to gamble on. Like I said, you can't predetermine this game. It's hard to pre it's the hardest thing to predetermine this game. Because, oh, yeah, you they have the stud pitcher pitching against this other team, blah, 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 blah. And guess what? He comes out there and, you know, hey, walks a couple guys, gives up a home run, a couple errors behind him. You don't know what's going to happen. It's not just about who lays up against who. It's who gets out there and does it and makes their adjustments during the game. Yeah. So yeah. it's real hard game to predetermine like they like i've said a million times and so doing that that's hard to do do you think there's any danger with gambling that that we're going to see another black sock situation i you know i know there's so much more money involved now and players have a lot less incentive to throw games but you know there's been thought that maybe owners will that there'll be all kinds of do you think that's even a possibility i think that too much technology out there to find this stuff in reality. You know, there should yeah. there should be no crimes that ever happen that don't get seen. They come on, you see everything, hear everything. You know, Alexa's in the house. She, she's you know, no, here's everything that's going on right now. <laughs> Part of the deal, man. And I don't understand how anybody can do any type of crime and get away with it now or any kind of cheating and get away with it. Well, you're saying that, but what about the Astros only a couple of years ago? They got away with it until they didn't. Yeah, they got away with it until, you know, one of their dudes actually set up. And so it made MLB actually do something for it. But <laughs> obviously knew guys that played against them knew that, but they aren't just going to listen to people, you know, but once that happens and forced MLB to do something kind of like, you know, they've been using the sticky stuff in pine tar for years and decades, but they just decided now we're going to stop that. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of knowing stuff, your, your ERA started going up right around the time a certain juice started uh, becoming very frequent in baseball. Did, did you know, I'm not going to ask you to name names, of course, but did you know that things were going on? Did baseball know that things were going on and no one did anything? Oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely. They knew what was going on. Um, but they just, they didn't care until a bunch of things happened that they decided to get frustrated about it. But mm -hmm. I've so many stories, so many teams were just forcing guys to do it and do it weird, but you know, ever so, oh, yeah, steroid there started in the late 90s. And no, it started in the late 80s. Mm. And I know that for a fact. <laughs> well, because Jose Canseco said as much in his book. Yeah. Um, admitting, of course, uh, that he also was, was doing it. So, but it seemed like in, in the late 90s is when it started to become a little bit more plentiful. And now it, it probably did affect pitcher stats because so many hitters were doing it. Yeah. And, you know, nowadays, if you think guys aren't doing stuff, the stuff that they can use now goes in and out of your body within 48 hours. So you, you can't test positive to any of the stuff they're doing now. Whereas back in the day, you could test positive a couple months down the road if right. you did this stuff. Now it's out in 48. So 
the only way that they catch people, if you look, the guys that get busted is they'll do like back-to-back tests really quick. They'll do a test on somebody. If they know that he's doing it, they'll do a test on him and then wait like three or four days and then go do it again. They're like, yo, you know, we didn't think he, he probably didn't think we were going to do another one so quick. So we got him. Well, I, what think Robinson, I think Robinson Cano got caught because he, he thought that uh, he had a night game on a certain day and it turned out he had a day game. So he juiced knowing that the thing would be out of his system by the evening. But they tested him. <laughs> they tested him during the day because they had a day game, and he got caught. Yeah. What's uh, what is your feeling though, Jack? On just in general, performance enhancing drugs. Um, I mean, uh, it changes the game. Obviously, uh, it changes your bounce back, your your refresh rate. Um, but should should people be able to do whatever they want to do with their bodies because it's their bodies and and play the game that way or or should it be completely all natural? I don't know. I don't. I don't really. I think about it and I go, oh, I wonder if you know. I wonder what would happen if I would have done it. Yeah. I think back and oh, I wonder if I did it right now. You know, what if I did it right now for a year and then see if I could make a comeback, being a lot bigger and stronger? Maybe that'd be interesting. To see <laughs> whether you know what kind of stuff that stuff really does, but. Well, it's, it's, yeah. I, and again, I, I always say I'm old school and I look at, you know, history and I look at the records that were set throughout, you know, the, the entire uh, uh, century for baseball. And then you look at a guy like Barry Bonds that did X amount of things. And all of a sudden he's juicing and, and his stats go through the roof and whatnot. It changes everything about, you know, the history of the game versus today's game. So records all that stuff even today it goes out the window because pitchers don't pitch past the sixth inning or people are doing all this you know so it to me it 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 tarnishes the history of baseball because it changes everything yeah and the fact that they're changing everything about the game yeah yeah kind of game too i know are you glad that the shift is going to be is going to be outlawed in 2023 well i I haven't even read the actual rule on that. What does that mean that you can't do a shift? Does that mean the shortstop can't come on the other side of second base? What does it mean? I haven't read what the actual rule is. Apparently, it does mean that you're you're going to have to have two infielders. Uh, uh, you're going to have to have two infielders on each side of the base. That that much is clear. Step on the grass. That's or the, they have to be that, on dirt. That's the stuff that isn't clear yet. How, if if they are able to step on the grass, how far back can they go? No clue thinking about actual baseball and going, oh, wait a minute. You know, oh, he's on that side, but he's back out where he used to be because we didn't write the specific rule. I haven't read the rule yet, so I don't Maybe they have. I'd love, I'd love to know your opinion, though, Jack, because David and I disagree on this uh, vehemently. Uh, I I. I say I don't care if they want to put nine or all eight defensive players right at second base because this hitter only ever goes that way. Then a hitter should be good enough to to poke it down third base side. Um, so I don't care. Put everybody wherever you want to put it. I mean, but what do you what 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 do you feel? The hitters over the last maybe year and a half have just started going against the shift and saying, okay, I'm just going to do this and this rather than saying, I'm going to beat this thing. You know, I don't care that they're doing this and try to beat it. No, just play pepper. Exactly. Just play pepper. Are you kidding me? They would just do something like that. I don't, you know, I could go, I don't care. Guys throwing 120 miles an hour. I can just sit here and go, I've got an entire side of the field open to just go, but and just hit a, hit a cruddy ground ball for a base hit. Makes no sense. Lord, to just bun a ball down the line. You don't even need a good bun. Yeah. Bun it too hard, and it doesn't even matter. <laughs> but here's the thing, Jack. I, I'm, a, I've been a, I'm a lifetime Yankee fan, and uh, I, I watch – I have the baseball package, so I watch pretty much every game. And uh, Joey Gallo, who, of course, they shift – very, very extreme with him. He has dro- uh, dropped down a few bunts down the third baseline. And it's like the teams are saying, hey, you want a single? You know, you're probably going to walk anyway. So he- hell yeah, take it. And he's done it. 
But then, you know, the next at bat, he's doing exactly what he always does. You know, he's trying to hit the ball over the right field fence. He could be hitting 700 if he wanted to do that. And yet, maybe it's because of, of Brian Cashman and, and the way the, the program is set up. But it's like he won't do it consistently. He, he still feels like he's got to hit the ball out. But yeah. Major League Baseball doesn't want small ball. Yeah. You know, they don't want. They don't want to win games then. Now, they, well, don't. they don't want scores that are one nothing or two to one. They have these metrics that stolen bases. If you don't steal at an eighty five percent race, it's, it's it's ridiculous to steal base. No, it's individual, situational, right? As to what it is, and guess what? You got all third catchers down on one knee right now. Come on, yeah. Well, that's gonna help them make it. Oh catch. my God, Jack! We we could talk for four more hours on all these little things. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we should probably move on into it. your other. We, we should move it, and the metrics guys would be incorrect. <laughs> we should move on to your other career. Uh, that is a rock and roller. Um, did did you as a kid? Did you want to be? Did you see yourself as becoming a, mu a lifetime musician, or did that develop later? I got into it. My sister, who's 10 years older than me, worked in the music industry, started out at Chrysalis Records and then went to MC. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So we I'd get all the early music before anyone heard it. We'd nice. Um, and you know, I started playing guitar and taking lessons when I was, I think, 10 and 11 years old and playing it. So and I didn't really think anything. You know, I used to play it and enjoy it and learn songs, you know from listening to him on the radio and stuff like that. But I really started getting down to writing songs on that. When I went back, like I talked about earlier, I went back to Stanford to finish up my degree and I wasn't playing baseball. And so I get done with my classes and I'd be sitting around all day going, what am I going to do right now? So I brought my guitar in and started actually writing songs and getting into it a little bit. And, right. and how did you, was, was it called view or V I E W? Well, it, it was called View, and then we found out that there was another band called The View. And so we were huge REM fans also. So we said, all right, we're going to just go V period, I period, E period, W period, like REM. <laughs> and we'll make it to The View, yeah. So where did you start playing? What do you mean? as far like as which, which cities, which venues? Oh, I mean, the first the first real concert we did was opening up for the Smithereens. I mean, I, we did little acoustic things and stuff like that, but not real concerts until then. Well, we had a we had a comment come in from the Smithereens uh, saying, you know, played bass. Uh, Mike played bass with stick figures. So I wanted to make sure you saw that comment that came in. That's probably Jim Babjack, who was on our show a few weeks yep. ago, but. Yep. Um, so you obviously got to know them pretty well if, if Mike eventually uh, was part of Stick Figure. Yeah, well, Mike was Mike was the one who got us the opening thing, too. So he saw he saw us do an acoustic version on the Roy Firestone show of one mm -hmm. of the songs. And he thought it was a super cool song. And he's like, oh, this is pretty good. And he was a baseball fan, too. So I remember he, you know, he asked the other dudes, he asked Pat and Jim and them, he was like, hey, can we have these guys come and open up for us? That was totally cool. So that kind of got me into the whole thing. Did your fame as a ball player help you at all in terms of getting record deals? Um, I think it kind of went the other way around. Really? <laughs> Being a baseball dude and, and doing that, it was like, nah, because I couldn't, you know, do – tours as long right. much i couldn't do this couldn't do that and because i was a baseball player people wouldn't really focus much on it to check it out and you know so no i don't think that helped but then <laughs> after view it was stick figure and i want to play huh still trying to promote all my stuff from 20 years ago because very few people yeah actually heard it or listened to any of this I'm going to try to help you with that, and I'm going to start right now by playing um, my favorite of the three tracks you sent me um, by Stick Figure. This is Just Like Them. I hope. Uh, 
É. And that, those CDs are still available, Jack. Yeah, I've got them all, so I'm 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 the store. Well, where, <laughs> this, where, this, I'll I'll be I'll be one of your your customers because where do people find really it, Jack? Well, what, basically, I I put it out on Facebook. If you know, if you wanted to just message me, we could get it. We could get it, but you know, you can also. Anyone can email me and check it out. My email is stickjack one one one. All right, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna throw throw a little banner there so people can even because people watch this on archives quite a lot. So it's stickjack one 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 at what at yahoo.com. Yahoo. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this up there so anybody who wants to pick up a CD of Stickman, Stickman from Jack himself. This is coming right out of his house and stuffing it himself, and he'll probably he'll probably even sign it for you, I would think. Or, or yeah. uh, got a well, I've got seven CDs, but only multiples of five of them. Okay, all right. So, well, there, Stick Jack one 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 at Yahoo. Drop. How how many times do you get to drop a Cy Young Award winner an email saying, "Can I can I get a CD from you?" And uh, he'll uh, he'll only once. Yeah, <laughs> <maybe> only once. <laughs> get ready to the do a new record too. So well, nice. I was going to ask, um, are you up for doing a are you up for doing a reunion show? Because hey, we'll have you at International Pop Overthrow anytime. Well, yeah, it's it. I got to put a band back together though, so I'm just getting back into it. The music end of it and got to be able to put put a band back together have you spoken with the, with the original guys about it um well the original original view guys were baseball dudes so you know, and oh, no, i i was i was mainly talking about the stick the stick figure guys yeah well they're you know they're all doing what they're doing you know Maceros is out in california so we're coast to coast right now and Frank Fanero, who went from he went from us to Cracker. Oh you know, yeah, or, you know he. Uh, I think he's still doing stuff with them. So you know we can't just put we're gonna put something together. Be I hope so. I I mean you know I'll make sure to see you, and uh, it would be a thrill to have you at the festival. We can talk about that if if, if and when you do put a band together, but. Um, yeah, but I, the question is, it. would he do a cover version of the baseball projects, the Yankee Flipper? Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, I just wrote a song for them. They they contacted me because I had written a song, and I said, "Hey, this is a baseball-related song, anti-metric song. It's called <laughs> Mr. Saber." And they say that again, basically, like it's Mr. Saber, get out, you know. But it's a whole song that I wrote, and then I rewrote it. They're going in to do their next record pretty soon. And oh, wow. they might re-record that song. And I was like, hey, I'll come in and do stuff with you, too, if you want. So hopefully I can get in there. And it, because I wrote the song, they'll let me come in there and maybe sing it and play some on it. That'd be awesome. That'd be that good. would. <laughs> Let's hope. Let, I'll, I'll speak to Scott. I'll, I'll definitely uh, cajole him a little bit. They're gonna go. They were going to go in January, but because of the COVID you know, blow up the second go around, blow up. They said, no, nah, we can't go into a studio now. Right. They're here to North Carolina to do the studio that, you know, the old REM studios that they used to do everything at. Uh, do you know Mitch Easter? I haven't met Mitch, no. No. Okay, well, he's, <laughs> he's in the area, so yeah, yeah. You, guys, you guys should get that's together for sure. Dirt, right? I think, yeah, I think that's where they were going to go. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, Jack, yeah. this was this was an absolute pleasure. It really was, and we thank you so much for your, for, for being on, for giving us an hour of your time. Um, it was fun, and uh, you you have strong opinions about stuff, which is great. And uh, yes, it was, it was it was yeah. I'm glad to have gotten to know you. Yeah. yeah. Well, hopefully, my opinions aren't just opinions. I can metric it out and be <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. 
Yeah, Jack, this was an absolute thrill. Uh, uh, thank you so much again. And again, if anybody's interested in uh, stick figures, uh, stickjack111 at yahoo.com. Get in touch with Jack. He'll get you a CD. And we look forward to more music in the future from you, my friend. And Absolutely. as I said, we, we probably could have talked for four more hours on just everything baseball because David and I love to talk uh, talk about those things. So thank you again. We wish you great health, happiness, and and all the success uh, in the future, my friend. Thank you. All right. Thank take you, care. Jack. Be well. Have a great night, Jack. Good night. All right. Take care. Well, there All you right. have it, David Vash. That is our first Major League Baseball former All-Star Cy Young winner to appear on Material Issues. What a thrill. It really was. Um, he, yeah, he's a great interview. And, yeah, he has very strong opinions slash facts. <laughs> but that's why I was so looking forward to this because you, know, you and I, we go back and forth on on baseball you know, issues, so to speak. And I was like, oh, this is going to be great. We can we can get into it with somebody who's very opinionated. <laughs> and and we had we did we, we 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 did it respectfully and it was good. We definitely did it respectfully. And, you know, I didn't even have to go go to where he might not have wanted to go, which was, you know, the flipper thing and the. Uh, you know, the, 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 the hit that Yankee fans will never forgive him for. I did. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, and I, and one of the things I would have asked him, one of the things I would have asked him if it did go there is, did he, does he believe in the concept of clutch hitting and clutch pitching? Right. That, right. You know, does he feel like, you know, he, he wasn't, because, you know, his, his postseason record was not good. No matter, right. uh, every, all, all three times. And, uh, does he think it's just something that happened or does he think it's maybe he was nervous or of course, you know, in the 95 uh, playoffs against Seattle, he gave up hits to Ken Griffey Jr. and Edgar Martinez, both Hall of Famers. So right, right. no shame in that. Anybody could have done that. But, you know, you know how fans are. These guys get paid so much money. They have to deliver. They can't be human beings. But you know? somebody's got to deliver, and just so happens that at that that moment, the the hitters delivered. You know, right? And again, these are good players. It's not you know, these are major league players. It's not like you and me were up there. Yeah. Um, yeah. How could he? How could he let David Bash, who has never swung a bat in the major leagues, get a hit? <laughs> I don't even know what that would feel like if I was up in a situation like that, and I was facing a guy like Jack McDowell. And I actually got a base hit. It would be so surreal. I would have an out-of-body experience as I was running the first. Of course, well, with my speed, with my speed, I better hit it out. I don't <laughs> care what part of the park I hit it in. They'd throw me out from the outfield before I even got the first. What, so kind, of, hit it out. what kind of shift would they put on for David Bash? <laughs> it really wouldn't matter where they were. I'm so slow that <laughs> all they'd have to do is get to the ball and they could throw me out. Probably. hit it out. I have probably, to hit it out. You'd probably get some sunflower seeds out, eat a couple, then throw it first. <laughs> I, I mean, if, you know, if I did this in 95, I'd still be running now. I mean, I wouldn't even gotten the first yet. <laughs> so if it didn't go over the fence, I, I'd screw it. Oh, Lord, my Lord. That was that was funny. Oh. That, it was great having a, a major league player on, and uh, we're going to do it again next week. Yeah. Yeah. What, about, what are we going to do next week? This time we have a, a, a hitter, an outfielder who played for the Rangers and the Yankees and became a Yankees announcer. And, uh, yeah, another really bright guy who has uh, strong opinions about stuff. Mr. Billy Sample will be our guest next week on Material Issues. That would be the 13th. Yep. And then on the 20th, we're back to music with um, the daughter of one of I, I'm going to say it right this time, of two yeah. of the most iconic singer-songwriters in the history of rock and roll, uh, Carol King and Jerry Goffin. And, of course, Carol being, you know, a Hall of Fame artist in her own right. Yep. Uh, we're talking about Louise Goffin, who was, a, you know, who did some great music on her own. Uh, released several albums, including one last year. Really good stuff. And uh, it's going to be great getting her perspective uh, on her famous parents and on her own career. So that should be a lot of fun. And then on the 27th, we'll uh, let you take this one away. Well, as a, as a recent comment uh, on Material Issues Facebook group from Jordan Oaks said, uh, the interviews of a lifetime. Uh, this is going to be a band that, as, I, as I, we've discussed, haven't heard 
seen interviews or heard much anything from them in a very, very long time. Two former members of the 70s band Artful Dodger. We've got the bass player, uh, Steve Cooper. We've got the lead singer, Billy Palacelli. Um, four major label albums. And what, let's let's find out all about Artful Dodger because there's a lot of people that love them, but you've never really heard much from them uh, interview-wise. So that's going to be a lot of fun. That's going to be It'll a lot be great. Of fun. And, um, yeah, I know we've been saying this for several weeks now, but we do have other irons on the, on the fire. I have a feeling that by next week we're going to be able to announce a couple more guests um, as we get into May. Uh, and sooner so, or later, you and I are just going to have a show where it's just you and I talking about some new music and things. Because, you know, way back when, when we when we started this, we said, yeah, maybe we'll have some guests. We'll try to get some guests, but we'll also talk a lot about releases and music and things. And we've done so well with all these wonderful guests that we haven't yeah. really taken much time to talk about new music. So maybe one of these weeks coming up here, it'll just be you and I. But we don't know. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure it will. You know, if there if there happens to be a week that it, it that guests just don't work out, then yeah, by all means, we will. Yeah. But but yeah, and uh, yeah, of course, in May, I'll uh, on um, the 18th, I believe it is, uh, or or the 17th, I can't remember, but I'll be at uh, I'll be at the Cavern. Um, it'll be 11 o'clock GMT, and uh, of course, we'll still be there. So I'm going to try to do as much of the show as possible from there. I don't know what their Wi-Fi connection is going to be like. Right. Yeah. But it would be great just to be able to do a little bit. Uh, it may be too loud, but, you know, we'll, 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 we'll do what we can. Yeah, it will be um, interesting to see what might happen uh, live from the cavern in Liverpool. Hopefully. Yeah, we'll, we'll, cool. we'll certainly do our best. Um, but anyway, this was this was another really fun one, and uh, I'll be buying some Jack McDowell music. Yep. I'm sure you will too. And one 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 at yahoo.com. He's got my absolutely. email. <laughs> well, Mark, uh, again, uh, it was always always great, always great to see you, and um, right back. I, look forward to next week. All right, let's let's do it again next week here on Material Issues. Tell your friends, you know, join the group on Facebook. Uh, go over and subscribe on YouTube at materialissues.com. Spread the word. David and I are here every Wednesday. We've got great guests coming up, uh, and we'll see you next week right here. Absolutely. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Stay well, and we'll see you next time.